You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, how many of you recognize that song? You're not old enough then. That was a Neil Young song. Y'all remember Neil Young? And they did a remaster of that song in 1986 because it was just so darn good. And as I was studying this week and preparing on the text that actually Derek and I had intended to teach on a week before last, a week before this, last week. Was it last week? Yeah, when we didn't meet. Uh, That song just came to mind because it works with the text. The title of the song is, is Four Strong Winds. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Because in Matthew, we're dealing with something that actually we are dealing with today. In America, it's no surprise that we are facing some strong winds, aren't we? No doubt about it. And you could say that we're facing four strong winds. There's the political wind. It's pretty strong, isn't it? (laughs) Right? Y'all going to have to help me out here. You're a small crowd. So when I say right, you just need to go, yeah, right. Okay. All right. There you go. Okay. Yeah, we're we're facing a strong political wind that's really wreaking havoc in our our country right now. We're facing a strong cultural wind. There are, are movements that are ideologies that seem to be at complete odds with each other socially and culturally in America, more than any time I've ever seen it in my 66 years on this planet. We're facing also some physical strong winds. This virus is is also wreaking havoc upon lives and health and and, and families, and, and even in the gospel, even ministry, because of the gatherings that we we come to gather, and and it's a strong wind. But in the midst of all of that, there's also a spiritual strong wind that is blowing. And in in my understanding, the enemy is using this entire chaos that we are living in to divide and to destroy his people. Obviously, people who are not believers are being affected by it as well. But my main concern is, is what is happening within the context of the body of Christ and is what is happening to the, to the gospel uh, in America. And, and I thought about it this morning. It's been, we have not seen someone through the ministry of the church that we are aware of come to faith and go through the waters of baptism since April. That's been what, eight or nine, ten months? Never in my 40 years of ministry have I seen that. Never. We, 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 we saw over 100 people one year come to Christ and go through the waters of baptism. In the last 10 months, there has been not been one person go through those waters and give testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and their death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Do you think that this is not a spiritual battle that we are in? It very much is. This war, this wind that is blowing through our nation and through the church in America and literally around the world. You see, these storms are either going to divide and destroy, or they're going to develop us. 
That's our choice. Whether we allow them to divide us and destroy us or whether we allow them to develop us more into the image of Christ. It's interesting uh, what a mother eagle does about how she builds her nest. She finds, first of all, the highest place she can find. I saw an eagle's nest a, a few years ago down in the woodlands on a golf course, actually, that my son was playing a tournament in. And, and this huge tree way up there, but the eagle, it was on the 18th hole of that course, the eagle built its nest at the very top of that tree. It must have been close to 100 feet off of the ground. She does so in order to protect against predators. And as she builds her nest, it can weigh up to a couple of thousand pounds. She uses briars, she uses thorns, she uses rocks, she uses sticks to build the frame. All of these are sharp objects. And then she begins to line it with feathers and with skin from animals that she has killed in order to, to live. And, and so when she finishes, it's a very, very soft and comforting place where the eaglets are going to be born. It's a great place to live for these young little birds. But there comes a time in their development where it's time for the eaglets to leave the nest and to grow up and to spread their wings. But they don't want to do that because it's so comfortable in the nest. And so the mother eagle begins to literally rip the nest apart. All of the feathers, all of the skins that have lined the nest, she rips out, she tears it up, and that is called Stirring the nest. Have you ever heard that term before? That's what the mother eagle does. She stirs the nest. She makes that nest so uncomfortable. And then she stops feeding them. She's been feeding them the whole time. She hunts. She brings back food. She stops feeding them. And so now the nest is completely uncomfortable. And they're beginning to get hungry. And they finally get the message. And they leave the nest. And they spread their wings. And, and it looks cruel when you think about what the mother eagle does, but it's actually very, very good parenting. It is an act of her goodness and her desire to, to see her, her babies grow up and, and be on their own. And without this difficulty, they would never leave the nest. Without this difficulty, they would never grow up. They'd stay there in that nice soft nest. They'd let mom come and feed them. They would never learn to fly. They would never learn to soar in the sky. Isn't that interesting? That's like our Heavenly Father. The Scripture tells us that that's exactly what He does with us. He uses difficulty to grow us up and to mature us. James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In other words, when the nest is not comfortable anymore, knowing that the testing of your faith makes it pure and gives you endurance. Isn't that incredible? In other words, if God did not allow us to face difficulty, he would not be able, we would not be able to mature and grow up into the image of Christ. And so the difficulty is all around us. It's coming at us from the north, east, south, and wind, west. Four strong winds are blowing through our nation right now. And we all face difficulty. They come pretty much from three sources. Some of our difficulty that we face comes from living in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world that is not perfect, and bad things happen, right? Bad things happen. It's just part of the human experience. There are hurricanes, there are tsunamis, there are earthquakes, there's sickness, there's death. There's all of those things that happen just because the world is not perfect as God originally created it. Sometimes we enter into storms because we make stupid choices. We make bad choices. 
And the scripture says, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. So if you plant that stupid choice in the ground, it's going to reap a harvest and that's not going to be much fun. So sometimes we create our own storms, don't we? And then sometimes our storms are the direct result of God's sovereign purpose. Like the mother eagle, sometimes God just stirs the nest. And he puts us into a situation uh, where we are either going to respond to him and we are going to be developed or we are going to turn our back on him and we are going to be destroyed. And most often, here's part of the problem that we have, most often when we're in the midst of the storm, at the moment, we cannot discern the source of the storm, whether it's fallen world, whether it's my choices, whether it's God's sovereign purpose. We, we, we can't, we often in the storm, we can't really understand what the source of this is. And so we often ask the wrong question. We ask the why question. We ask, well, why is this happening? And I submit to you, that is absolutely the wrong question to ask the why question. Because most often there is not an immediate answer coming to that question. The right question to ask is the how question. How am I going to respond to this storm? Not why is this storm here, because I may not be able to discern that. But I can ask the right question, and that is, regardless of its source, how am I going to respond? So this morning I want to look at a text, and I want you to see a storm And it's a storm that had strong, strong winds. And the story is recorded in Matthew chapter 14. We'll pick up in verse 22 in just a moment, but turn to Matthew 14. And let me give you the context of it. You're very familiar with the story, most of you. Just before we get into this story, Jesus has been teaching all day on a hillside, teaching people. He taught all day long, and at the end of the day, the people were hungry. And so Jesus then provided for their food. Jesus fed the 5,000. You remember that, that story. Miraculously fed the 5,000. Right on the tail end of that, what Jesus did right after that, coming into our text, is he sends the disciples into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and tells them to go to the other side. And then Jesus goes away, the scripture says, to a mountain to, to pray. And while the disciples are in the boat going across the sea, a storm comes up. That was not unusual for the Sea of Galilee. It's known for, even today, storms that just come up very quickly out of nowhere, and then they they dissipate quickly. But as the disciples are out there in the boat going to the other side, a storm comes up, and they become incredibly afraid. They're afraid that they're going to lose their lives. And at the end end of the text, Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and Jesus calms the storm. Now, those are the elements of the text. It's the elements of the story. But as we look deeper into the story, I submit to you that there is so much more here than just the elements of the story. There's some truths that we understand of how to respond when the strong winds blow. When we find ourselves in a storm, whether it's from one wind or two winds or three winds or four winds, whether it's one of those like perfect storms, you know, when two storms come together and, and you're caught in the middle of it the way the Andrea Gale was in the, the perfect storm out of Gloucestershire, uh, Massachusetts, that went out and was never seen again because two perfect storms came together and sunk their boat and they were never heard from again. You see, this storm 
in Matthew 14 was one of those perfect storms. And, and there are five reasons I want to give you out of the text this morning why this was a perfect storm. And we're also going to answer the question along the way, not of why, but of how. How are we to respond to the storms. How does Jesus want us to respond? This perfect storm, why was it perfect? It was perfect, first of all, because of its perfect purpose. In verse 22 of Matthew 14, the scripture tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And the rest of the text says to go to the other side of the sea. Now that's interesting. Jesus made them, it says. Jesus made them get into the boat. The word that is used here in the Greek text means literally to compel, to force, to require. In other words, this wasn't a request. Jesus said, if you guys want to, y'all get in the boat and go to the other side. Jesus commanded them to get into the boat and to go to the other side. Now, do you think for a moment that Jesus, who knew all things, was even able to see the depths of the heart, who knew all things visible and invisible, visible, who is the Lord of all things, do you think... That he who had power over the storm didn't know he was sending them into a storm? Not for a moment. He knew that there was going to be a storm, yet he sent the disciples, get this, right into the middle of the storm. Now, why would he do that? Because he hated them? (laughs) No, because he wanted to do something in their life. There was a purpose. Everything that Jesus did with those disciples, and everything he's doing with us now is teaching us, growing us up like the mother eagle, stirring the nest in order that we might grow in maturity in Christ. Now, just before this, remember, Jesus has taught all day on the hillside, and then he does the miracle at the end to feed the 5,000. Now, here's my question. Do you think that the disciples learned anything about that that miracle? Do you think that from that miracle and from that day that the disciples learned anything? I doubt it. They probably didn't because they're human beings just like I, we are. As a matter of fact, I think probably what that miracle did for them is all it did was it confirmed their desire for Jesus to make life easy. Because you see, they still believe that the Messiah, the Christ, when he came, was going to be a, a delivering king, right? And he was going to drive the Romans out, and he was going to set the Jews up as, as oh, you know, the, the kingdom was going to be set up right there. That's still the mindset that they had. And Jesus said, no, that's not who I'm going to be. That's not what I'm going to do. So when Jesus did a miracle like this, all it did for them is it just confirmed for them, see, Jesus is going to make life good. This is going to be good times. And so, right on the tail end of that, he sends them smack dab into the middle of a storm. You see, it's in the storm where Jesus teaches them. They don't learn anything in the miracle. That makes life easy. Jesus said, Jesus is going to teach them, but life is not going to be that way. That's not why I came to be an earthly king. I came to establish a heavenly kingdom. And if you follow me, it's not always going to be easy. You see, I've said this a thousand times before, and I've had people argue with me, and it's okay. If you want to be wrong, that's okay. That's your right. But I can look at my own life, and I can look at the life of people over 40 years, and I can look in Scripture, and I can tell you this with, with a fact. We don't learn on the mountaintop. We enjoy the mountaintop. The mountaintop is refreshing, but we learn in the valley. That's where 
faith is hammered out. That's the message of Scripture over and over and over. Thank God he gives us mountaintop experiences period of time. But where we are taught, where we are shaped, where we are formed is not on that mountaintop. It is in the valley. And if you look through Scripture, you'll find that pattern in every one of God's heroes in the Scripture. That every one of them, their walk with their God was hammered out on the anvil of difficulty every single time. Because, you see, that's where we learn. That's where we grow. That's where faith is tested, James 1, 2, and 3, right? Says that way when you're, it's in those persecutions, in those difficult times where faith is tested, faith is purified, and then we become mature and complete, he says, lacking in nothing. So here's, here's the first thing. Regardless of the source of the storm, we need to stop asking why, because in the midst of it, we, we're probably not going to get that answer. Later on, usually we can look back and we can say, oh, that's why that happened. That's, it was a result of the fallen world. It was my own stupid choices. Or, or, or The Lord obviously intended that for me specifically to go through. But in the midst of it, we're not going to know that answer. So we, the question we should ask is how? How am I going to see this storm? Am I going to see this as a part of the sovereign God's purpose in my life? If I do, that's going to determine a great deal about how I respond to it, whether it develops me or whether it destroys me. Second of all, well, let me ask you a question. How are you doing in the storm? I mean, really, these four strong winds that are blowing through your life, my life, through the church, through America, through our country— is it defeating you or is it developing you? Is it going to destroy you or is it going to mature you? How's it going right now? Just evaluate your life. Are you becoming better or bitter? Because those are the only two courses we have. None of us will stay neutral in the midst of it. And regardless of what the source of this storm is, the question is, what are you as God's child, what are you as a Christ follower going to do with this? How are you going to respond? Are you going to let this thing destroy you? Or are you going to let it develop you in greater trust and maturity in Christ? Second of all, I've got to quit fabricating here or <laughs> we won't get through because i got five points. This is a perfect storm, second of all, because of his perfect prayers. I love this. Verse 23 says that when Jesus sent them away, he went to the mountain to pray. Now, that's not unusual because Jesus often did that in his ministry. But there's only a handful of times that Scripture tells us what Jesus prayed. The garden tells us, the garden of Gethsemane tells us what he was praying. There's only a couple of times in Scripture that we were actually kind of led in on to hear the prayers of Jesus. Most of the time, it just says that Jesus went alone to a mountain place to be alone with the Father and to pray. Have you ever wondered perhaps what Jesus was praying? Do you wonder what Jesus was praying at this moment after he sent the disciples into the sea? The scripture doesn't specifically tell us what he prayed, but it does give us a good indication. Because verse 25, after they're out there in the sea and Jesus is praying and has been praying, it says, verse 25, it says it was the fourth watch of the night. Does it say the fourth watch or the third watch? It says it was the fourth watch of the night. Now that is the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which is the time that the sun would begin to kind of rise. But in that moment in time, around that 3 and 4 and 5 o'clock period of time, it is the darkest part 
of the night. Now, in Mark's account, by the way, all four of the Gospels record this story. This made an impact on them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this particular experience as the Spirit was inspiring them to write down their Gospel. Mark's account of this says Jesus saw them straining at the oars. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) It's at the fourth watch between 3 and 6 a.m. It's hours after Jesus has sent them into the, the boat. It's pitch dark. They're far away from the shore, but Mark informs us that Jesus sees them. Why? How? It indicates to us that Jesus has been watching them the entire time. Jesus never took his eyes off. Him who knows all things, him for whom there is no secret, there is no day, there is no night, he saw them the entire time. And what do you think Jesus is doing while he's praying? Well, I believe Jesus is praying for these disciples as he has sent them into this storm. He is praying that they won't ask the why question, that they'll ask the how question. How are we to deal with this storm? As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that I believe that is because that's this promise that Scripture has given us over and over and over. That our risen Savior, our great high priest who now intercedes, who now opens the way for us before the Father, as the book of Hebrews says over and over and over, that He is constantly, continually praying for you and for me. He is interceding for us with the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from His sight. Okay, so can Jesus see at 3 o'clock in the morning when the disciples are over? Yeah, there's no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are open and are laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's not a problem for him to see us at any place. Hebrews 7.25. Hence also he is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him, listen to this, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. That word intercession means prayer. That Jesus now is the right hand of the Father speaking to the Father about you and about me and about the circumstances and about the situation and about the storm that you're in. Jesus is interceding. Luke chapter 22, while Jesus was still on earth before the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus has that conversation with Peter when he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Wow, that's a good message to hear from your Lord, isn't it? You're going to deny me. But then Jesus says in verse 32, but I've prayed for you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now get this, because Jesus' prayer comes true. It's answered. I pray for you that your faith will not fail you, and when you have been turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus just looked into the future and knew exactly what Peter was going to do. Peter was going to deny him. Peter was going to be distraught. Peter was going to be remorseful over what he did. But Jesus was going to restore him in the last chapter of John with that story when Jesus in a resurrected form appears on the the bank there and he cooks Peter breakfast and he calls Peter in and he's asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Jesus said, feed my sheep, tend my lamb, shepherd my sheep. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was fulfilling the prayer that he'd already prayed for Peter that Peter would turn again And he would strengthen his brothers. And that's exactly what Peter did from that moment on. Peter became the leader of the the apostles. He was the very one that had denied the Lord Jesus three times when Jesus was on trial. 
Jesus said, but I've prayed for you. It's not going to be the end of you, Peter, because when you are turned again, you will go and you will strengthen your brothers. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? You see, the Lord Jesus, he's interceding. Peter did do all the things that, that Jesus said he would do because Jesus said, I have prayed for you. Sometimes in the storm, we ask the question, does anybody see? Does anybody give a rip? Does anybody care? Will anybody pray? Well, I want to tell you, Jesus does all those things. He sees, he cares, he's praying. He's interceding for you and me before the Father. What's Jesus praying? I don't know exactly what it is. It's probably not what I want, but it's what I need. Because the Lord Jesus knows what I need. Father, restore him, grow him, mature him in this. See, this is a perfect storm. It's perfect because it has a perfect purpose, but it's perfect because of Jesus' perfect prayers. Third, it's perfect because of his perfect presence. Verse 25. It says, in the fourth watch, Jesus came walking out to them on the sea. Now, we're all familiar with this story, but there's so much here. If you, this is not, Jesus didn't do anything just for show. There's a reason and there's a purpose for why he did what he did. During the third watch, it says, he saw them. We trust that he had been interceding for them, and he knows they're in a storm. But he doesn't come to them immediately. He could have. He could have just suddenly appeared in the boat with them. He certainly did that several other times in the Scripture. But he didn't do it that way. He waited until the fourth watch, hours after they'd been fighting the storm for hours. He waited until the fourth watch while they'd spent some time in there. And then Jesus took the time to take a leisurely stroll on the water. He's just in no big hurry. Because you see, this thing has got to work itself out. This thing has got to come to its conclusion. This thing has got to fulfill its purpose. So now he comes to them, walking on the water. Let me ask you a question. What was it that the disciples were afraid of? Come on, somebody answer. This is class. We got small enough to be a class. Okay, the hurricane? Dying. And how would they die? The water. They would drown. That's... The winds were no problem as long as they knew they could stay in the boat. But they knew, we go into the water, we're dead. So what does Jesus do? Jesus came walking on the water. The very thing that they fear is what Jesus used to come to them. Now here's an important fact. The very thing that troubled them transported Jesus to them. You see, often we say in a storm, where is God? Where is Jesus? You've never said that. You're much more spiritual than that. But I've said that a few times. You know, we're we're tempted under humanness when we're in the midst of a storm. We ask this question, where are you, Lord? You know why we ask that question? Because we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking outside the storm rather than in the midst of the storm. You see, where Jesus is... 
is in the midst of the storm with us. And if we're looking outside of the storm, hoping to get through this thing on our own power, we're always going to miss him. When you're in the storm, look in the middle of the storm and you'll see Jesus because that's where he is. Because he takes that very thing of which we are afraid, of which we are terrified, and it becomes the vehicle that brings him to us. If we're looking to the shore, we'll miss him. Because he's not on the shore, he's in the storm. He has come to us in the storm. So the very thing that you fear, look there to see Jesus. Because it is that very thing that he will, in the midst of it, that he will reveal himself to you in. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Let's just say Let's change that brokenhearted to those in the storm. The Lord is near to us in the storm. Is Jesus still on the mountain praying? Is Jesus already gone to the other side and he's waiting for us? No. He uses the very thing that we are afraid of to reveal his presence to us. And if we're looking outside, we're going to miss him. We're going to always ask the question, where is Jesus? We need to start looking in the middle of the pain. So the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those. Who are crushed in spirit. David wrote that psalm when he was running for his life from his enemies. David was in a storm. But in the midst of this storm, David did something incredible. He acknowledged God in the midst of the storm. He draws near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Was this a perfect storm? Yes, it was a perfect storm. It was perfect because it had a perfect purpose. All storms do to develop us. It was perfect because of his perfect prayers. Jesus was praying for him. He always does. He ever lives to intercede for us before the Father. It was perfect because of his perfect presence. Jesus does not leave us in the storm. It is the storm that brings him to us in a more intimate way than we could have experienced without the storm. Fourth, it's perfect because of his perfect power. Verses 26 through 29, it says that Jesus came to them walking on the water. And it was the water that brought him to them. It was the water that they were afraid of. Now again, Jesus wasn't a sensationalist. Often the, the crowd said, Lord, do a miracle and show us who you were. And he always refused. He said, no, that's not my gig. I'm not here to be a magician and I'm not here to do it. Jesus always did his miracles for specific purposes. Not to be a sensationalist, he wasn't a magician, he wasn't a sideshow freak. Jesus did miracles for specific purposes. And so when, when people wanted Jesus to do miracles, he wouldn't, he refused. But he did miracles for a specific purpose to teach and to confirm who he was. So notice what this communicated when Jesus came walking on the water. It communicated his power over the water. So here's the truth. By walking on the water, Jesus communicated his power over the water. The water was the very thing they feared. And so when Jesus walked on it, what was he doing? He put it beneath his feet. Now don't miss that picture. Jesus, walking on the water, put the water beneath his feet. He didn't fear the storm. He didn't fear the water. Why? Because he is Lord over the storm and Lord over the water. Now, that entire imagery of beneath his feet is something that is used, that picture, all through Scripture. 
And whenever it is used, it communicates complete dominion and power over something. Let me give you a few illustrations. Paul, when he was speaking of Jesus' second coming, how many of you said in 2020, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Okay, yeah, he's going to. I don't know when, but he's going to. Okay, so we live in anticipation of that day. But Paul speaking, even in his day of this time when Jesus would come again in Matthew, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 through 27, he says, and then the end comes. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Putting them under his feet communicates complete authority and dominion and power over. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Over and over and over, we could read text after text after text. Putting under his feet is a picture of complete authority and power and dominion over. So Jesus comes putting the water under his feet. These disciples were not unknowing about that imagery. Jesus was trying to say, the very thing that you are so deathly afraid of, look, I have authority and power over it. You know, Jesus never promised us, folks, that there would be no storms. Just the opposite. He promised that there would be, right? Over and over and over. The disciples didn't want to hear that. We don't want to hear it. It doesn't change the fact, <laughs> okay? You can't read the New Testament without understanding that Jesus didn't promise us a rose garden. Sound like a song, doesn't it? Jesus said, hey, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. You see, he promised his purpose in the storms, that, that this can make us more like him. He promised us his prayers. He ever lives to intercede for us when we're there. He promises his presence. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you right there in the midst of the storm. Don't look outside of the storm. Look for me. Right there in the midst of it. But he also promised us his power over that storm. John 16, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You could, you could say, be of good cheer, for I have put the world beneath my feet. I have power. I have authority over the world. Every storm is beneath Jesus' feet. It is subject to his power. You say, when will it end? It will end when he who has power over the storm decrees it. And until that time, he prays for us. He's with us. He has power over that. He's developing us. He's making us. Lastly, the last promise. This is a perfect storm because it had a perfect promise that came with it. Now, this is subtle, but I want you to see this. Don't miss it. When Jesus sent the disciples into the boat, he was sending them into the storm. He knew this. Jesus promised them that they would get through the storm. Now, if you take a moment and read the text, you're going to go, I don't see that. 
Where did he promise? It doesn't say. Jesus didn't say, now get in the boat. I promise you, you're going to make it to the other side. He, where is that? It's not in the text, is it? Say, where is this promise? <laughs> it's in the command. Verse 22. He made them get in the boat and we're go to the other side. <laughs> he intended them to get to the other side. Do you think there was going to be anything that was going to keep them from getting there? The promise was in the command to obey. Obey, here's the promise. He didn't, commit, he didn't command them to go under. He commanded them to go over. And in that command, folks, is the promise. Because Jesus never commands that which he cannot accomplish. What he promises, Jesus performs. You see, when we're obeying Him in the midst of the storm, the political storm, the, the social cultural storm, the physical storm, the spiritual storm, when we're, when we're obeying Him in the storm, we have a promise that He will bring us through the storm. And for some of us, it will not be in this life. For some of us, it will be when we enter into eternity with Him, as a, but because we die in the storm does not mean the storm did not fulfill its purpose. That does not mean that Jesus had no power over the storm, the storm because the Scripture promises us in that place there will be no tears. There will be no pain. There will be no... So at some point for every one of us, the storm's not going to end, right? On this side of the grave. I don't know which storm that's going to be in, but for every single one of us, I don't know. The last time I looked at the statistics, 100 out of 100 die. We're all going to die. There's going to be a storm you're not going to get through, and I'm not going to get through from the human perspective. But that simply means that then he takes us for that eternity where there are no more storms. Jesus promises us every single time when he commands he promises an overcoming. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You know, I don't know how people live in this world who don't have hope in Jesus. I honestly don't. I, I lived for 19 years without having hope in Jesus, and I look back on that life even, you know, as a young man before Christ brought me to Him, and then I look from 19 to 66, and I go, good Lord, I can't imagine living through, as good as I've had it, I can't imagine living through this without hope in Jesus. To give you, he says, hope in the future. You know, we often read Psalm 23 at funerals. The irony of that is that Psalm 23 is not about death. Exactly the opposite. Psalm 23 is not talking about death. It's talking about life. It is talking about the life of sheep with their shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and you are my sheep and I know you by name. So Psalm 23 is not about death at all. It's an appropriate text for that because it's comforting. But it is not about death. It is about life. And in verse 4 of that, David says, And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's not talking about actual death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, the valley is so deep and the valley is so all-encompassing that it 
feels like death. And even though I walk through that valley, I will fear no evil. You see, he's not referencing physical death. He's referencing the valleys of life. We can call them all kinds of things. We can call them the ups and downs of life. We can call them the valleys of life. We can call them the storms of life. They're all the same thing. He's referring to the valleys of life that feel like death. But he says, get this. And this is God speaking through him as he writes this. Though I walk through. In other words, I'm going to get through this. This valley of the shadow that looks like death. I'm walking through this. How long are you going to be in the valley? I don't know. How deep is the valley going to be? I don't know. But David says, but I know. I'm not going to fear. For I'm going to walk through the valley of the shadow. You know, we can look at the text in the scripture. And we can see the elements and go, well, that's a cool story. But when you really begin to look beneath and see, well, why is this happening? Why is Jesus doing this? What are the things? What's happened just before it? Why would he do this great feeding of 5,000 and then send them out there to fear for their life right on the tail end of it? He's teaching. He's molding. He's making. C.S. Lewis put it this way. A glimpse is not a vision. But to a man on a mountain road by night, in the pitch black, a glimpse of the next three feet of road may matter more than a vision of the horizon. You ever been there? I mean, it's pitch black. You make a misstep, you could fall off 100 feet to your death. At that point, you don't want to see the end road. You just want to see the next step. And, and the next step is more precious to you than a picture of the end of the trip. Isn't that great? What a thinker. A glimpse is not a vision. God gives us a glimpse. As we're in the storm, if we'll look to him, if we'll look for him, he may not show us the shore immediately, but that next step, that next step. We, we say around here, when people say, well, what do I do next? Just do the next right thing. Don't look down the end. You don't know what that's going to look like. Just do the next right thing. Just one step. It's not a, it's not a vision. We always want a vision. And it's often God just gives us a glimpse. Because a glimpse is not a vision. In that valley, all we need is that one step. You see, this is, this is, this is the message, folks. We're surrounded right now. And, and I, say, I say this over and over. More than I've ever seen in 66 years. More than I've ever seen in over 40 years of ministry. We are being tugged as a nation as individuals, as the body of Jesus. We are being tugged apart in the midst of this storm. It doesn't mean that those things that are happening out there have nothing to do with us. They have a great deal to do with us. It doesn't mean they are not important. But what it means is if we're not careful, this storm will be used by the enemy to destroy us rather than to develop us. And so as much as we are engaged in all of these other things, we have to look beyond them and look for just a moment and say, Lord Jesus, just give us one more step. Give us one more look at one more step. Know the storm that you're in is a perfect storm. It's perfect because he has a purpose. 
It's perfect because he's praying, he's interceding. It's perfect because his presence is right here. Don't look outside of this thing. Look right here. It's perfect because of his power. This hasn't taken him by surprise. He's molding and shaping this entire thing to accomplish his sovereign purpose. But also, it's perfect because of his perfect promise. Folks, I don't know about the lost person. Well, I do know a lot about the lost person. They don't have any hope. This storm's going to take them down. If not this one, then the next one. And when they do, they enter into eternity separated from Jesus. But I'll promise you there's not a storm that's going to do that to, to a Christ follower. Because even if we go down physically in this life into death, then immediately we are transported into life eternal. And this storm doesn't win. I hope that encourages you. I hope that you will stop looking outside the storm and look in the middle and say, Lord Jesus, let me see you right here, right now. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement of your word. And we here gathered and those online confess to you that most of us have been looking outside of this thing. And for many of us, it has been destroying us. It's been destroying families. It's been destroying churches. It's been taking the gospel of Jesus in our nation to its knees. So, Father, allow us in this time to quit looking outside the storm and look inside and say, how do you want to use this, Father, in me, in us, and in the gospel message that we are commissioned to carry? How do you want to use this? How should I respond? How can I see you in the midst of this? How can I trust you in the midst of this? Lord, show yourself. Thank you, Father, that we have an intercessor in our Lord Jesus, whoever lives, to make that intercession for us. I pray, Father, for your encouragement for your people today, for pastors all over this land that are looking at what has happened in their churches and are so discouraged. I pray, Father, you'll lift their heart up, that this is not beyond you, it didn't take you by surprise. And if we all will look to you, you will show your sovereign purpose and will and plan in the midst of it. For we pray this in the strong and powerful name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go out and have a good day.